Hello and welcome to episode 319 of the Crate and Crowbar, a PC gaming podcast. I'm Marsh Davis and I'm joined via the internet tubes from distant, distant Vancouver land by Tom Francis. Hello. And from the seaside resort of Brighton by none other than Graham Smith. Hello. It's lovely to be here. How is it in Brighton? Um, It's beautiful weather. It's sickeningly nice. (laughs) <laughs> as I stare at it out the window, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what what would be worse. I'm not sure if it'd be worse to be trapped inside during glorious weather like this, or if it was pouring with rain and grey, whether it would feel more oppressive in some way. Yeah, mm. I think like for short periods at least, it's really nice to be indoors when it's raining and gloomy outside. Mm. There's nothing for you outside. It's just people eating ice creams and being harassed by seagulls. <laughs> <laughs> this is my this is my first time on the podcast in. Four years that's not Holy a live shit. show. Oh, like, right, only yeah. times I've done it since then have been at Rezzed, basically. And so it's it's strange not to have a hundred people looking at me right now as I'm doing this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the weird thing. <laughs> have you have you remembered how to have a take? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm genuinely quite nervous. I'm not sure I remember how to speak about video games out loud. <laughs> <laughs> well, this might be a short podcast. We'll find out. <laughs> we do actually have some news, not... though, this week. We have lots of different little bits of news. Primary primary news. <laughs> I don't know what I was trying to say there. <laughs> the prime news is um, uh, prime. the announcement of Chimera, uh, a game from Firaxis in the XCOM franchise. Um, Tom, do you, do you have any feelings or thoughts about the <laughs> nature and shape of this game? <laughs> Had a, a a barrage of feelings and thoughts about this when it was announced. Was it yesterday morning? It feels like a year ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so the full name is XCOM Chimera Squad. Um, and the reason I had a particular deluge of thoughts about it is, apart from the excitement of it being a new XCOM game, um, uh, is that a lot of the differences between this and XCOM are the differences that I have put into Tactical Breach Wizards. <laughs> um, in that it is a game about breaching into rooms. It's They've split up missions into individual encounters, which is exactly what we did. Um, it starts with a breach phase. In our game, it's not really a phase. It's just sort of like a thing you do at the start of a mission. Um, but obviously, it's in the title. Um, and it's also a fixed squad of... Um, I don't know a lot about like how story-driven it is, but it's not randomly generated guys who you can die and you just move on. This is a squad you have to keep alive. They're individual characters. I think they're all different, uh, have like unique abilities and stuff. Like one of them's a snake dude and one of them's a, um, a muton kind of uh, brute. Um, and then some of them are human. And so I think their classes and like what they can do is kind of established um, uh, up front, which again is, is how our game works. Um, I mentioned this on Twitter, but uh, I don't think any of that actually came from our game. I don't think they're, they're like cribbing from it because I imagine this has been in development for at least as long as ours has. Um, and also none of those things are our inventions. Those are all in other games. Um, and also it came from, you know, thinking about what would it be cool to add to XCOM, which is the exact same question they're asking themselves, I imagine. Um, so I'm really excited to play it. It's going to be a like very much up my alley and be really good research like perfect couldn't ask for a, a more uh kind of juicy game to like you know test theories and see like oh if we've done it this way how would that play um what are you going to do if people hate it they're like oh <laughs> actually yeah that's the, <laughs> One, the only <laughs> thing I, they shouldn't have added to xcom is breaching <laughs> and yet they also added clearing my second least favorite thing <laughs> 
um, yeah, that's a, a potential concern. Um, but e- even there, it sort of feel like we're not. It wouldn't be too bad because if it has a negative reaction, it will be from people who wanted XCOM, right? They yeah. like we're XCOM fans. You call this XCOM? This is an XCOM. Damn you! And obviously, we don't have that problem. The worst outcome I think I can see for us is that um, if this sort of you know gets into the public consciousness, uh, you know, makes a mark, then it might cause people to assume our game is more like it than it is, um, which would be bad both from a you know it seeming less interesting perspective, but also because it isn't. Um, our game does not have like chances to hit. It's not a it's much more in the puzzle direction, more in the into the breach direction, where you're trying to we present you with a situation, and you figure out how to solve it, and you have all the information you need. Uh, whereas XCOM is like you you have a, an idea of what you want to make happen, and you try some things that you hope will increase the likelihood of that, and then you click end turn, and it's you know you sit on the edge of your seat wondering what the hell's going to happen. Um, and yeah, we're much more in the into the breach direction, and I don't want and that's. Uh, I think there's an audience for that, but it's not the same audience, and mm. people. Uh, some people really, if you read negative reviews into the breach, that's often like a thing that comes up. Is oh, really? people find it too puzzly, and oh. they want more tactics and they want more chance. And do you think you'll yeah. push it more in the direction of the of, of the puzzle game? It, if we were already, um, I very much left my options open in the design of it. So at every stage, rather than building like the whole logic of the game to rule out uh, dice rolls and and things happening on the enemy turn that you don't know about. Uh, we left that in as an as a possibility, and we in fact we have one enemy right now that acts on the enemy turn without warning, and I put that in a test version recently, um, and uh, but it was kind of we didn't do it much work on that because it wasn't really, um, you know, all the successful stuff we built was about predictable enemies, um, so I just threw it in in the last level with no warning and no tutorialization, and so understandably we have a lot of feedback from people saying what the hell was that? Why can that person just act <laughs> with like no warning? And it's also a really weird one. It's an enemy who can. Um, it's a riot priest, and you have a riot priest on your team too. But um, and the enemy's ability is the same as yours, which is ch- charge, which means they get a run up and they travel. However many squares they travel, that's how much knockback they do to you. But they can only do it in the four sort of cardinal directions, um, and that is a weird ability to fight against with no warning because it's very hard to judge whether they're going to be able to do it to you because um, you've got to look at from what angles could you get a run up on my people from where I'm standing and if you know, I was knocked in the opposite direction to that uh, where would I go and what would I hit and how much damage would I take and I can do that calculus because I obviously live and breathe this game for years um, but it's a lot to ask of a player who still you know might not understand some basics about the, the world so it's a, a particularly weird one and we got some pushback not that much so really it, the effect of Chimera might be that um, we were considering going in a, more in the XCOM direction if we got a lot of feedback that people liked that and they didn't like the the puzzly stuff. But actually, we didn't really see that. We had a few people say that, but not too many. And now that there is a game that's um, going to be more tactics-y, um, maybe we don't... Maybe we forget about going in that direction. Mm. Or maybe I play Chimera and, and see loads of cool stuff it does with that and, and seal it. <laughs> it's, it's interesting watching the Chimera trailer because the, the the first thing you think of is oh well they've really you know they've really cut down XCOM and they've created these really contained battles, and then as the trailer goes on, it just lists all the various different ways in which you can manipulate that possibility space through customization, and there's, there must have been like eight different ways <laughs> of customizing <laughs> your units. Um, uh, it's, 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 so my my impression of it was that it was there's 
it's quite a complicated game. Um, it doesn't seem to have reduced any of the complication. It's not like it's a distillation of XCOM in, in the same way uh, that you might expect it to be. I'm yeah. interested to see um, how it plays out because it's also very um, it's also very cheap. It's coming. I think it's like yeah. a maximum of eighteen pounds, and for the entire week of its launch, which is next week, it will be fifty percent off, which is, you know, amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's it's bizarre. I've never seen a launch discount that high. It's a very unusual thing to do. So I'm I'm so curious what they're thinking is like why, you know, why not just price it lower or why do such a deep discount? Um, it feels either like a strategy, like a like I don't know. It's almost. I almost don't like it. <laughs> I'm, I'm very suspicious of it, which is not, are, not not a nice thing to be about. Probably perfectly innocent people, but I just, uh, I just, there's something something about it that worries me. Yeah, I'm sure this is not a decision made by like the actual devs sort of who are creating the game, because um, they're 2K, right? So it's probably a, a publisher level decision. Um, but uh, I don't, I won't theorize about their the motives, but um, the the sort of trigger in my brain that it it sort of reminds me of is there are there are rules in steam about discounts because they don't want people to do something like say their game is 60 dollars but it's 80 percent off and then just leave it at 80 percent off forever and in that way sort of dupe people into thinking they're getting a massive discount when actually uh the 80 percent off is a meaningless claim hmm. if it never is charged that price how do they uh, obviously how do not, they do that um, how do they enforce that how does steam enforce that yeah yeah how do they know that that's what's happening um, you, it's just to do with how often you can set a discount. Like I think it's uh, you can't do a new one within a month of your last one or something. Um, mm. And there's there's something about there is something about launch discount, some rule. Um, oh, I think it's it might be that you can't do another discount just after your until a longer period after you launch the discount is up. But anyway, that's obviously not what XCOM people are doing because that you know it will <laughs> this discount does end, um, and so it's just a, a curious thing. But yeah, it's good for us because yeah. cheap. Well, I, I I see um I see low launch prices and I and I think printers and and printer cartridges, <laughs> you know, <laughs> very very uncharitably, you know, get get them in and then uh yeah, charge them for DLC is is what that that strategy smells of. But I I hope that's not I hope that's not where they're going with it. It's probably not where they go with it. I guess the 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 thing that it makes me think of is the last time they tried to make an XCOM spin-off game um, which was the first person shooter which oh, eventually yeah. they released as, was it the Bureau? Yeah. Um, and obviously there was a lot of backlash against that original announcement because it was a first person shooter and not a, not a tactics game and there was no tactics game at that point. Um, and so I like I, I can't imagine it plays into their thinking, but it, it. I wonder if they just if they're just gun shy about the idea of doing anything with the XCOM brand that isn't that core tactics experience that people are used yeah. to. I think maybe maybe they're just launching it for cheap because they want to dominate the headlines during a lockdown. Like you know, people are looking for a a small sort of distraction game of that kind. Then. They want to be on as many people's computers as possible. That is true. There's a lot of companies doing weeks of free access to their games at the moment and mm. that sort of stuff and deep, deep discounts. Yeah. The uh, other news, which isn't, isn't really um, 
headline grabbing news although it did grab a Kotaku headline just because of the uh, <laughs> how it amused uh, Jason Shreer is that the writer of The Outer Wilds has been hired by Obsidian now who made The Outer Worlds <laughs> <laughs> it just feels like they're fucking with us now <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, as an addendum to that uh, Soren Johnson has revealed Old World um <laughs> which is uh, a new strategy game from him. Yeah, and that sounds really cool. Um, uh, that has a... It looks a lot like Civ, but apparently it has sort of generational things like Crusader Kings, where your leader can actually die and, and your players, their offspring. Um, but also, I think it's going to be simpler than, than that hybrid sort of implies, because they have a system to limit your orders and... Uh, so I don't know how what the number is typically because you can change it, but um, uh, it's some, if it was something like four orders, that means even in the late game where you have hundreds of units, you're not going to move 100 units in your turn. You're going to move four of them, or you can even just move one unit four times. Uh, you just do four things, and then that's the turnover. Four is not their number. I just pick that out of the air. I imagine by the late game, it's probably more than that. But um, I really like that idea because I... Civ, I just, I almost never finish a game of Civ because it just gets to a point where it's just such a slog just to do, not even to do something interesting, just to, like, I want all of my people, all my attack units to move to this enemy city. That is going to be, like, 35 turns of clicking on, you know, 16 units to move them one pace and they'll constantly lose their order because they're like, oh, no, I'm blocked now by this other unit. And it's just absolute misery. (laughs) So I'm very uh, interested in a game that solves that. (laughs) Have you um have you seen uh <laughs> I don't know what I was gonna say. <laughs> that's, that's weird. Sorry. There's something weird about doing this podcast and not being able to see people. For some reason, like just staring at my computer screen. I don't get this when I'm on like a conference call, but like I'll start a sentence and then like about two thirds of the way through it, my brain just goes like you're talking to yourself in your room on your own. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you even bothering? And then, uh, uh, then I, I can't escape that kind of death spiral. And uh, I don't. Do you, do you do you have that when you're just on the phone with someone, like there are regular phone calls? No, no, I never have that. This is just purely because of this podcast. I don't. This is a new sensation. Anyway, it's very That's stupid. Weird. I'm very stupid. I um, the thing I'm doing right now is I have my browser open because this is how we're doing it. But I have a load of tabs open. And I'm switching to each tab on my touchpad and looking at it. I'm not reading it. I'm not doing anything there because I can't because I'm focusing on this. <laughs> but I just keep on switching to tabs and just looking at them. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I need to do that. Maybe I need to distract myself with enough stuff so that it, it quiets the part of my brain that's going to just start panicking halfway through a sentence. <laughs> I don't know. I, anyway, um, I, I, there's another news thing I wanted to talk about, uh, yes. which um, I can't... Uh, it's a weird one because it's not really news. It's it's a tip, <laughs> um, which is that I was watching a stream by Jonathan Blow um, today about a really technical thing to do with movement in puzzle games. And there's just this problem with how you move in a grid-based puzzle game but still make it look smooth. And I was interested in that problem, so I started watching it. And uh, I he shows his, his the game he's working on in this stream, but he doesn't want to announce the game. So you just see little snippets out of context. And he um, shows quite a lot, actually. It's kind of interesting just for that reason. Um, but as I watched and as I sort of noticed some things about it I came up with a theory about what his next game is that immediately seems right to me and seems really cool and really interesting Uh, but I don't want to say what the theory is because I do have a tiny bit of insider knowledge that doesn't confirm my theory but it um, well uh, 
that makes me hesitant to actually say my theory but i'd be very interested we'll link it in the show notes um and i recommend going and watching it and seeing if you can figure out what the game is because this is something they've decided to show publicly but they're not announcing it yet but i think you can you can figure out the concept from it and it's a really cool concept mm-hmm. mysterious <laughs> what have you been playing this week tom um uh, i have been playing a game you've played also uh not re- recently though uh sigma theory oh yes which is a game about managing spies on a sort of global map and i've had it on my wish list for so long because um i think also uh, i was trying to find the podcast that you talked about on it uh, talked about it on and i instead found the podcast that graham talked about it on yeah. uh, in 2017 <laughs> yeah what's yeah, the one remember that it, was, yeah that was that was at uh, egx raised so that was wow. like a, a live podcast I, and i played the game there uh, it was on the show floor and so i had like a like a 15 minute play session or something and talked to the developer a little bit hmm. huh. um it's uh, yeah it's so up my alley like i to the point that i i think i've at multiple times planned a game like this and then um uh, never quite come up with enough you know twists uh on it to make it uh be something that's actually worth making um but i'm very glad they've made it because uh i get to you know indulge that fantasy without having to make a game <laughs> um and it, yeah the theme i really like the the aesthetic of it as well it's very pink um <laughs> and it's got a kind of uh, a very like all the agents look super cool and and attractive and um uh there's something i don't know weirdly i want to use the word earnest about the style it's sort of um i don't know i don't know why that word springs to mind but it's um uh, i find it very appealing and yeah just like that kind of moody um futuristic uh semi-futuristic it's kind of mostly real world but um uh it's about advanced technologies um that whole vibe really appeals to me (laughs) and the game itself is is insane i I had no idea i knew i was gonna get something out of it because i like the theme so much but i wasn't prepared for just how bizarre and wacky it is um because it looks so serious and looks so sort of realistic and it's a spy thriller kind of thing um but the uh, the premise is that this the sigma theory of the title is some some undescribed piece of technology that's been discovered that will so dramatically accelerate uh research and science in every field that uh everybody realizes that you know the next kind of couple of months everything is going to be discovered <laughs> like i think on turn five cancer was cured <laughs> um and uh uh robot legs is obviously the other uh profound <laughs> dimension which you, you talked about uh, when you covered this marsh um i got those two uh and the the first all these techs are on like different branches and you when you get a hold of a scientist you're kind of trying to accumulate these scientists to to speed up your research and get these techs before anyone else um and they'll have a specialty in in one of these branches and one of the branches is finance the first tech on the finance branch ends capitalism (laughs) (laughs) it's something somewhere manipulating the markets that says it will effectively end capitalism it's like what what the hell are the other techs on the finance branch (laughs) (laughs) um so that's just fun because like the developments that are being made by you and by others are just absurd um and of course the way what that actually does in practice is 
uh, if you cure cancer, it makes scientists like a certain percentage more likely to join your course. <laughs> like you can be more easily persuade scientists to join you. And that's the practical benefit of curing cancer. And um, uh, if you uh, end capitalism, I imagine that's just going to be a little boost for your income or, you know, like uh, fi financial things will be easier. Weirdly, the game doesn't actually have money. Uh, so I guess capitalism's already been ended. Um, <laughs> because anytime you bribe somebody or do something that would cost you money, uh, because there's no money resource you can always do it but it just reduces your own government's opinion of you because you're like the head of the Sigma research division or something you have quite a lot of authority but but you still have a government above you kind of approving or disapproving of your actions and so that's how money is, is handled is every time you do something that costs money your government likes you less <laughs> which is I mean that's a system we could try <laughs> um yeah, my game was just bizarre, and I was I was mostly enjoying it. I mean, it was making me laugh out loud so often. I've never laughed so much at a strategy game. <laughs> Everything that happened was just so absurd. Um, and it has this really... I mean, that sort of chance of recruiting scientists thing gets at one of its problems, which is it has loads of chance-based things, but it never tells you what the odds are. Um, and so you, that makes it all feel kind of meaningless, like something will succeed or fail, and you... like. I don't know if I just if I had a 90% chance of success and I, that I just got the 10% roll or if I was never going to be able to do this and there was no hope of it. And so that makes it hard to like learn and um, uh, get better. And also it just kind of makes it mean less. You know, there's a reason that, that people talk so much about XCOMs you know, missing the 90% shot in XCOM. That's, uh, they might be cursing XCOM's name for it, but they're, they're sure talking about it and it sticks in their memory forever. And uh, there's so much emotional like impact to those times because you're told what the odds are and then you see it go your way or you see it not and that has weight and this doesn't do that um i had a similar problem to you marsh where um at some point one of my scientists was just taken by an enemy power with no warning and that's i only had two scientists <laughs> that's like half of my entire research output gone um and that just felt like uh well what am I, you know what was i supposed to do i don't know how to avoid that um yeah. It didn't end up being crippling for me because actually that was right as I was I was in the I had a lot of um what's the word? I want to say forks in the fire, uh plates spinning, things going on. Because uh, <laughs> it takes time to, like if you want to actually steal a scientist from another country, you move your agent there, then you have them do some recon, uh look for scientists, then they found the scientists but you don't know anything about them, and so then you pick a scientist and you have them identify them. And then only then do you get some information on like what the best approach might be, whether you should seduce them, uh, or do they have the chaste trait, which means they can't be seduced. <laughs> um, and then, then when if you if your attempt to turn them is successful, and one of the one of the ways you can turn them is abduct, abduct them, which I I guess that can fail too because they could just overpower you, <laughs> which would be embarrassing. Um, but. Uh, even once you once you have them, then you've got to extract them as well, and that's like a little, a, a surprisingly sort of um, visual mini game. Like it's just a series of decisions where you just get told your agent reports, "Oh, there's a roadblock up ahead. Should I shoot my way past, or should I take the side alley?" And again, it's a hundreds and hundreds of dice rolls that you're not seeing, and you don't know what the chances are. Sometimes you're told like, "Oh, this this agent's trait here uh, gives them a." Um... Actually, no, I think I'm wrong. Uh, I don't think it does tell you that when you make the decision or sorry it doesn't tell you that before you make the decision and so when you ask to make the decision you don't you have to remember what your agent's traits are and and use your judgment to decide whether they will be 
helpful there. Like I had an agent who's an expert in hand-to-hand combat. And so when she came up against, um, uh, I think a cop had her at gunpoint and I said like, try and take him. And it worked because she had this black belt trait, but it only says that after you make the decision. Um, and I think they want that's to make you like read your agent's dossiers. Um, but yeah, that's a sort of, I found that minigame quite fun in a way. It, sort of, it did successfully have some tension. You're trying to break out of the city with this scientist in tow. And um, the scientist never mentioned in all these uh, encounters with the police and stuff, like you're jumping off rooftops and things. And it's like, where is the person you're extracting here? <laughs> in a backpack. Did you throw them off? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, yeah, just, just riding piggyback. Just, yeah, gaffer taped to your thigh or something. <laughs> if you need to shoot someone, you hand them the gun because your hands aren't free. <laughs> Um, but yeah, anyway, so that that's why it takes a while to extract a scientist, and so I was it was a bad time that the um, that my scientist defected. But then uh, right after that, I got a bunch, and I, I actually ended up overtaking everybody. Or yeah, uh, I ended up in the lead on Sigma research. But I I hit you're trying to hit 15 in Sigma research, and I guess that I'm not sure what that does really, but sort of that's winning the game, I think. And I did that the same turn as the doomsday clock hit midnight, which ends the game um, and fails you. And so I got the rating of incompetent civil servant. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and it harsh. kind of crashed at that point as well, or it sort of hung. So the word incompetent civil servant started to throb on screen on a, just a blank pink screen. And then nothing else happened and it just kept on throbbing. <laughs> so, wow, this is a... If you are the, the the head of uh, a spy network that regularly murders and kills and abducts people and uh, changes the fate of humanity, are you just a civil servant at that point? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seemed a strange way to uh, characterize my performance. And the reason it the reason I the reason the world ended is because of a bizarre interaction that I still don't understand. But I was kind of laughing too much to be angry at it, which is I. Uh, this one time I did get warning that spies were trying to turn my scientists. It tells you that like you detected some spies in the capital. And I think it should always tell you. I know I know that that's unfair on the other nations because the, the, they obviously don't get told when you infiltrate them. Mm. But I think in a single player game, you've just got to do that in the player's favor and just tell them because it's no fun to lose without any warning. Yeah, it felt um, like there needed to be some sort of measure for you to counteract uh, other people's yeah, infiltration, so- you know. So in this case, I could. Um, I was told there were some spies in my city, so I move one of my spies back to, to sort of identify them, and I can do that. And it works just like a scientist, where you don't know anything about them at first, and then you can identify them, and then you look at their traits and decide what method. Your, your only methods are capture or counteract, and so basically, counteract would stop their operation, but it wouldn't um, uh, wouldn't get you the agent if you capture them which I, I went for. Uh, I brought my super agent home, my, like my elite agent. You could just get one really good agent. I brought her home. And she easily captured uh, this guy, Double K was his name. Um, <laughs> and uh, we had, the, you get like 12 options to interrogate them. Uh, everything from normal interrogation to waterboarding. Um, and I chose... A, oh, basically as a joke i chose long interrogation because just because i found the description so like uh pedestrian for um compared to all the other options um but i think it needs to be more specific about what what kind of length we're talking about here and what kind of duress is involved because uh i chose that immediately i get the next line is um uh, double k deployed pacifist which is one of his traits i knew he had the trait pacifist which means he's less willing to go on violent operations but uh, it said he deployed trait pacifist and then it said he was executed 
<laughs> what? And then I immediately, I lose 40% of my diplomatic relations with France, which is where it's from. <laughs> my own government loses all faith in me. The doomsday clock ticks three cl- minutes closer to midnight, which ends the world. <laughs> like, who the, what the, huh? who executed him? We... He was a captive. We we had control of him. Did he execute himself? Is that he, what it means? He just Did he, he, like... became, he became so peaceful he died. So... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why is that a pacifist thing? I don't understand. <laughs> I, if I'd ordered him to execute somebody else, I would see how pacifist factored into it. But he was a prisoner. I'm in control of the interrogation. Maybe I picked the wrong option and I shouldn't have done it. And it apparently counted as torture. So whoops. Um, <laughs> Maybe may some ambiguity in the name of that option. Um, I thought it was like you know sort of four hours of interrogation <laughs> that would be a long interrogation i think it might have been you know uh, like 48 hours of sleep deprivation or something um but even so like if he killed himself that would be okay like a result of my interrogation technique i still don't see how that's a pacifist thing um but that would make more sense but we executed him who executed him i don't understand <laughs> and that just ended the whole game for me <laughs> <laughs> oh dear do you, do you get a pro- sense? Sorry. Uh, I was just going to say, I'm probably going to play it again because I think there's there's more to discover there. Do you get a sense of uh, how much your actions are being mirrored in the simulation of other nations? Do you think they are actually all simulating their own teams doing little things and doing missions? Or is it just very one-sided and there's a sort of illusion of a simulation going on? Um, I don't know. The fact that it's possible for them to get an agent in your city without you knowing sort of feels like they wanted it to be symmetrical um and i like i say i think that's a mistake um but i at the same time i don't know yeah I, actually i think maybe it is because it's you just keep getting told another thing i didn't like about it was that um every few turns you get not one but two dialogues about anytime any country in the world other than you discovers a technology you um, get one dialogue saying, ah, oh, terrible news, They America has discovered X, and um, you get sort of chewed out for that. And then you get separate dialogue saying, America has discovered X, which means all their stuff is amazing, and your stuff is trash, and we, we can never have this now. And uh, Or you can, it's got a bizarre system where you can reverse engineer it, which make, it speeds up your progress on researching this technology, but then you don't get it. <laughs> which is uh, okay <laughs> i don't know why we're doing this um and so yeah it's this constant stream of bad news but that feels like they a result of their simulation because it didn't feel like well balanced or anything it was kind of mad it was just being bombarded like you know russia's got this russia's got this russia's got this um hmm. but yeah it um it also turned around for me quite um uh quite significantly uh, I ended up overtaking I think at some point I was like seven points behind and like I say it's only out of 15 um, but I ended up overtaking France I think because I kept on hacking them and uh, I was trying to steal their research but actually one of the fail options for hacking is oh we didn't steal their research but we did slow them down we like fucked with theirs um, and my hacker had the hasty trait he like had a hacker trait which makes him good at hacking and then he had the hasty trait which makes him bad at everything he does but very fast at it (laughs) and so he would i was repeatedly hacking france and never succeeding in stealing their data but often succeeding in in slowing them down ironically um uh, with my hasty hacker and i guess that sort of stalled them almost completely because i ended up overtaking them do you remember much of this game graham did you play it have you played it since 2017 
No, so I haven't played it at all since then, and like, I do remember it, but the chunk I played was, I think it was solely the exfiltration bit of a scientist in a city. Ah, uh, right. Um, I think that was the only part of it uh, I actually played, or if there was a little bit of menus beforehand, it was ninety seconds of menus, and I I don't remember it. Like my impression of it at the time was that it was quite similar to Sid Meier's covert action. Yeah. Oh yeah. Is it covert action? Covert yeah. affairs. I think One it's of co- these is a covert TV action. show. Covert affairs is a TV show. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, covert action, which was similarly like a Cold War spy thriller, which was simulating other countries' terrorist actions against your state, and you were trying to interrogate suspects and find enough information from this kind of and procedurally generated um, plot against your country that you were trying to unravel before it it could actually happen. Yeah, did you play it, Graham? <laughs> Yes, yeah, a long time ago now. Um, it was. Yeah, I did I too. It. I think it's on GOG. Yeah, and that had like that was mini games for everything, right? Everything was a little game in itself, yeah. and so you you want to bug some meeting room or something. You're the one who actually has to do like the wiring on the power box to get like a insert a listening yeah. device and things. Um, yeah, and Sid Meier was always kind of down on it because he always yeah. said that it was like too many mini games like you were like players would get into the there was like a sort of sort of platforming bit where you were actually <laughs> controlling your spy sneaking around a building i think and then then they would be diffusing a bomb then they would be interrogating a guy that would be a different mini game and um but i always liked that about it <laughs> that was <laughs> like i was kind of what i was sort of hoping that sigma theory would turn into would be that varied in terms of the experiences and representing all these different parts of the fantasy. Yeah. I think there's something to his like takeaway from, from it was um, that you should have picked one of those things to focus on. And I think that's probably true. I feel like Sigma theory focuses on the strategy that, you know, the top level strategy layer of, of how all these things um, affect your overall progress. Um, and that's probably a good decision. I also found Sigma Theory easier to play than Covert Action. I remember Covert Action was just being lost in some of those mini games because I guess you have to learn each one. Um, mm. And it's kind. Of, I remember something to do with files being kind of overwhelming. And Sigma Theory does, I think, uh, do a good job of keeping things simple and easy to learn. Um, but I guess that uh, has its own cost. In that I saw, saw a lot of people um, saying that it was too. Uh, basic that it was just you know after a couple of games you're done with it hmm. yeah i did promise to go back to it after the podcast in which i talked about it and i <laughs> haven't so <laughs> <laughs> yeah do like the the um, character art though yeah yeah i definitely i chose all of my spies based on how cool they looked <laughs> yes <laughs> how did you um, choose your wife what was your criteria for that <laughs> oh god yeah i forgot about the wife <laughs> the wife that you have really strange conversations with that don't sound like any conversation with how the, with a human let alone a spouse <laughs> so you get to choose this is such a weird feature i can't believe that uh, i've got to believe that someone on the dev team was saying we should cut this we should cut this because <laughs> it's so like it's a strategy game and you choose your wife um uh you choose your spouse, so it can be either gender. But um, I, uh, I saw the default. I was I was Korean, and the default was um, I think 
an American woman, and I tried clicking on other nations, and it said no options. And uh, so I went, uh, I tried changing gender, and if I want a husband, I can have a husband from almost any country. But if you want oh. a, a wife, it has to be from America, and I think there might have been one other country there. Oh, I think um, that's because there's a default sort of setup for for the entire game. So you're going, you're you're playing their sort of default set of missions, which involve a specific uh, gender. Huh. Um, yeah, but anyway, the, uh, it, I didn't, unless I missed it, I didn't see any point when they told me what my wife's job was. And without that context, her first message to you is, uh, um, I have heard that you have been appointed as the head of Sigma Theory. Please accept my congratulations. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh yeah, just a casual spouse chat. <laughs> well, it's, it's notable that, uh, the, you choose your, uh, spouse from the same portraits that you recruit spies from. <laughs> so, um, there's maybe a little hint as to what, uh, she or he might be doing. I, I, I assume, um, I assume it's like sort of Chekhov's spousal betrayal, like, uh, at some I, point. Yeah, I was... Uh, <laughs> It was absolutely Chekhov's spouse. I had that phrase in my head because it's like, why is... I thought she was going to get kidnapped or killed or something. Um, it ended up being really intriguing, actually. I kind of just liked that whole aspect of it because, because like I say, I don't know what her job is. Like, she she only found out what my job was from someone else. And I guess I didn't send enough spies to find out what my wife does for a living. <laughs> but but the, all, her deal, all your dealings with her are very, uh, like, transactional. There's, it's always like, oh, if... if uh, you need a favor. I hope I'm going to get a favor from your position of power as well. And I don't know what a position of power is. There was one line right towards the end where I got the option to. Um, uh, I think she was asking me to send an agent to um, to rescue her. Actually, she did get uh, not kidnapped, but she actually it was kind of cool. She uh, got stopped. I don't know. Someone caught up to her or something, and the police came and uh, she killed them. <laughs> And now she was asking for an agent to like come and sort of sort out the mess and get her out of there. Typical um, marriage problems. <laughs> <laughs> and one of my options to reply to that was, you're higher up than me in the chain, can't you solve it? And so that's the only hint I got as to what her job is. She's someone higher up than me. Um, but yeah, that, that was kind of fascinating. I actually, I said, oh sure, yeah, you can have an agent. Um, and then it immediately said, oh, you, you're... Um, Agent Espoir, who's my elite, who's I use for everything, who's my absolute, um, uh, carries the whole team. It will be unavailable for six days. And it just tells you that's happened. Like, you don't get any chance to uh, approve it or anything. I thought I was going to get send, send an agent of my choice for, like, to a location and then just come straight back. Uh, but I lost my best agent for six days, so I hit Alt F4 and <laughs> just started the game again <laughs> to undo that, that decision. And then... Did you send a less talented agent to save well, your own that's... life? <laughs> No, because I didn't get you. Don't get a choice of what agent to send. I was going to abandon her. Oh. I was going to be like, look, <laughs> frankly, I can't spare one, because um, you know I like my wife, but Agent Espar is is an absolute badass. Um, <laughs> but actually, when I restarted, I was back at the start of that turn, and I did the rest of the things I did that turn, and uh, clicked end turn to get this event back, and it was a different event. It was one where she. Uh, her country was in turmoil or something and I needed to do something to s sort that out. I was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> this is better than that time you were kidnapped. <laughs> Graham. Hello. What have you been playing? Uh, well, in the past four years, uh, I've played many things. Uh, Deep breath. <laughs> um, no, I thought I, I thought I would talk about that Half-Life game. 
um, yeah. that was briefly mentioned last on the last episode of the podcast because I'm a listener now. Because uh, I've I've played it, I completed it, I reviewed it. Um, so yeah, Half Life Alex uh, came out about a month ago now, which is a prequel to Half Life Two. It's set in City Seventeen, takes place five years before Half Life Two. As the name suggests, you now play as Alex Vance, Gordon Freeman's former sidekick. Uh, and it's a VR game, it's a virtual reality game. Um, and it's a VR game through and through. It's not uh, a game that I can ever see coming to desktop PCs. Um, and it's, it's also, it's the only VR game I can think of that's operating at this kind of scale like there are other full games that have been retrofitted like Skyrim to work in VR um, but nothing that I can think of which has been made specifically with VR in mind that is the length and polish of Half-Life Alex, which is is not like it's not that's not something I would normally mention when talking about a game but it's relevant when talking about VR games which are often shorter arcade experiences Valve said before before Half-Life Alex came out that it was roughly the length of Half-Life 2 uh, and it is it took me about 15 hours to complete and it's a proper <laughs> proper Half-Life game um so like the, the opening moments of the game you're playing as Alex Alex speaks now so it's the series first speaking protagonist cause did that feel old. weird? no no that just like uh, I, I don't think I would have even thought about it if I hadn't read stories <laughs> about it beforehand it just felt completely natural um, and it's actually it's I wish there was more writing in it than there is. There's a lot of writing, um, a lot of very funny dialogue between Alex and, oh God, I've forgotten his name. Russell? Russell, that's it. That should be easy to remember, given that um, at the start of the game, he gives you a pair of gravity gloves, which he refers to as the Russells. <laughs> um, and the gravity gloves are the, the, the key way that you interact with the game, so, but I'll get onto that in a bit. But the dialogue is great, and a lot of it is reactive to the things that you're doing in any given moment. So you'll walk up to an object and pick something up, and Alex will remark upon it. Russell is always... He can see what you can see, because you're wearing basically like a little webcam headset or something like that, so he's in your ear talking to you. Cool, but Gary. what you can see. <laughs> and uh, he, like, one of one or the other of them will, will remark about the thing that's in front of you or that you just picked up or the area that you just walked into, that sort of stuff. And then as soon as there's a moment where they don't react to something that you pick up that you feel like, well, you would comment on this. <laughs> that was immediately jarring because I'm like, I want to say something about this. This is great. Like, I want more of that dialogue. Um, yeah. But so Russell at the start of the game gives you the gravity gloves, which that just to me when I heard about them, that just seemed like, oh, it's like the the gravity gun, um, from Half Life Two, which let you pick up physics objects. But they're gloves now because you're playing the game with motion controllers. But that sort of downplays their impact on the game. The gravity gloves are a really clever way of dealing with some of the common limitations of VR, specifically room scale VR. So you can play the game seated, standing, or at room scale. And the VR, the space in my house I've got is about 
two meters by two and a half meters. So it's quite it's it's a decent amount of size, and it's over, quite far over the like the minimum requirements for 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 playing at room scale. But there's still this constant problem in any VR game where you see something which is four feet away from you. You take four steps in your in your physical real world space towards it. And then you can't quite reach it. <laughs> it's sort of like just beyond mm. reach. And so you then either have to like walk backwards, teleport towards like walk backwards yeah. in real life, teleport towards it, and then walk again <laughs> in in your real space in order to get closer to it. Or do the weird thing where you turn around in real space and then turn your character around in the game <laughs> so that you're now you can walk forward again and that's just always really awkward and the gravity gloves just cut down on the amount you have to do that an enormous amount because you can point to anything in the environment and do like a hold down a, a, the, the grips on the motion controllers and do a wrist flick to drag that item towards you and then catch it in midair so like your, your primary action in the game almost more than shooting is playing catch with yourself with all these objects and the scenery and the, the, the scenery is so dense with physics objects, way, way, way more than Half-Life 2, which makes again makes sense because Half-Life 2 was, when did it come out? 2003? 17 years ago? 16, 17 years ago? Um, and like it obviously computers can handle more physics objects now, but still I don't think I've played a game. Like I think if I was playing a regular first person shooter that had this many physics objects into it, you would just be barreling into things and knocking <laughs> objects off shelves at all time. But in VR yeah. you're you're able to be so much more graceful. Um and so like that that's a big part of the game is exploring these environments. Some of them are like like at the very least half-life one sized or half-life you know like uh, it's everything's kind of scaled down slightly i would say from half-life 2 in terms of they talked about this in terms of uh, pacing problems where if you had uh, a bunch of combined soldiers in half-life 2 the average lifespan of a, of a combined soldier was about four seconds between the game <laughs> spawning the men and the player blowing them up um whereas in in half-life alex combined soldiers survive for about 90 seconds to two minutes huh. and combat because it's partly because it's in vr um it's much more tense and it's much more tiring especially again if you're playing at room scale where you're maybe physically ducking down behind objects standing up dashing around that sort of stuff such that they the environments are a little bit smaller, but they're, they're much more dense um, for poking around in. Um, and partly because the, the change in the size of those environments and some thematic stuff, it feels to me almost more similar to Half-Life 1 than Half-Life 2. Um, part in ways that I think are in, intentional. So like Half-Life 1 was obviously the ending of that game took place in Zen and Zen is infamous and derided, I think mostly unfairly, or at least it's hyperbolic, the dislike people have for that section of the game. In Half-Life 2 there is almost no mention of Zen whatsoever. <laughs> like, the Vortigaunts are in that game um, but other than that, like, there's there's no reference to it 
visually or in any other sense. Um, but in Half-Life Alex, there is. The game takes place in a part of C City 17 called the Quarantine Zone, and it's been quarantined within the city because it has become overrun by uh, enemies and flora and fauna from Zen, basically. So there are all these... Gr you're, you're moving through, like... Uh, warehouses and tenement blocks and hotels and stuff like that and there are these gross fleshy moist tumors <laughs> growing out of surfaces and corners and stuff like that did you try um, shining your light on those some of them yes like they're, they're very reactive so like are you thinking yeah. of the ones that kind of um hide from your light yeah. or yeah, yeah so there's, very cool. yeah there's a bunch of them that are like there's some that are like the mouths of baby birds, <laughs> so <that laughs> as as you as you get closer to them, they start they start snapping away like yeah. <clears throat> like trying to like that and and then the game. So uh, there's so much to talk about in this that as I'm so, my, my thoughts are all over the place. But um, one of the tools you have is like a like a multi tool you can use for hacking combine machinery, and use for tracing wires behind walls. So that you can do relatively simple environment puzzles where you have to change the flow of electricity in order to reroute it towards whatever piece of machinery you're trying to activate within the environment in order to, to open a door or unlock progress in some way. And they, they use that mostly as a way to steer you towards paying attention to particular things in the environment or drawing you towards certain spaces. And so at one point, there's a cupboard where you... You're using your multi-tool, holding it against a wall, and the electricity wire goes into a cupboard. So you open the door in the cupboard, and it's just filled with these little snapping mouths. And then you have to, because it's a VR game and you're using motion controls, you have to put your fingers near the mouths oh, of no. these snapping, snapping birds <laughs> in order to continue to track this electricity wire. And it's it's filled of moments like that, which are bringing like zen and some of that alien stuff from half-life one into the game and then also just being much more of a horror game than i ever i ever found half-life 2 to be half-life 2 obviously has this kind of horror section in the middle of it ravenholm which is a really great part of that game but ravenholm is great but i never found it particularly scary half-life 1 um Partly because I was younger when I played that game. When I played Half Life One, I would have been like thirteen years old, so I was I was more scared playing that than when I was playing Half Life Two. But I think it's much more of a traditional horror setup, you know, being in this B movie research facility and having to fight your way out of it as as aliens evade and military come in and that sort of stuff. But Half Life Alex is you you could almost just say it was a first person horror game as much as it's a first-person shooter at the very least, if not more so. Um, and, like, obviously VR is, because it's so much more immersive, it's it's really good at <laughs> making you feel afraid and tense uh, and putting you in those situations. But also just that combined with Valve's attention to detail and what I assume is years of player testing and feedback and pacing they throughout that game create moments which are like i felt real dread and more fear than i in any game i've ever played wow. and yet at the same time would be kind of delighted <laughs> by um the pacing of it and these like these moments of revelation as you realize 
what the designers are asking you to do or requiring you to do and like i don't want to spoil plot stuff um i'll, I'll just talk about like top level stuff on that um but i do want to talk about mechanical stuff a little bit more and there's a particular chapter it's, there's horror stuff throughout but there's a particular chapter about a monster who is blind um, but he can hear things and so it's sort of it's the most in my mind it's the most cliche horror monster imaginable <laughs> um, like i think every horror game seems to have a big blind brute that can hear you if you make too much noise uh, well half-life did right it had the um the, the pokey tentacle creatures yeah yeah the big tentacles which you have to like fling grenades in order to get it get the heads to move away so you can run around ladders and stuff like that but i never i never find that particularly scary it's more of like an action movie set piece but yeah. it is it is it is that exact mechanic this character in half-life alex is kind of like seven foot tall biped who's walking around a distillery that's filled with glass bottles <laughs> uh, and so of course like <laughs> you think oh okay this is this is fine i throw the glass bottles and jeff which is the name of this big monster fella he's gonna go where i've just smashed the glass bottle and i can go the other direction no problem this makes sense um but this is a vr game with motion controls uh, in which your hands are having to feel against walls and stuff like that in order to find these electricity cables and then there are bottles everywhere <laughs> uh, and so naturally you end up accidentally knocking these bottles off shelves and smashing them and then immediately this big brute is running towards you uh, and so throughout as you're like the, the beat by beat this thing is is so brilliantly paced and then they introduce I can't remember if it's in that section they introduce it or if it's a little bit early in the game but some of the zen flora that they've introduced are releasing spores and you're finding like you find you find hats in the environment if you put on a hat and then you walk under a barnacle instead of you getting sucked up by the tongue of the barnacle it just takes your hat off <laughs> and so it's like a little bit of armor you find gas masks in fact you find gas masks at the very beginning of the game and you, like I'm, I'm wearing a gas mask and walking around it has no effect for like the first six hours of the game or something <laughs> like that but the gas the gas masks you eventually find them and they allow you to breathe when walking through these spores without taking damage but the other thing you can do because again it's a motion controller game is you can just put your actual hand over your actual mouth <laughs> and that has the same effect and so you heard it here folks you heard it here first folks <laughs> <laughs> prevent infection by just holding your hand over your mouth <laughs> well yeah yeah I was like this was the first week of lockdown when I was playing this game in which you go into the quarantine zone <laughs> yeah <laughs> so, this is this is some but um, but Jeff this monster he's just got these spores coming off his back at all times and so oh. it leads to these like horror movie scenes in which you are trying desperately to get a door open by like trying to quietly track an electricity cable behind a wall and you accidentally knock a glass bottle off a shelf and it smashes and you freeze for a half second and then you start to hear jeff pounding towards you <laughs> you quickly dash away into a little gap behind some shelves and then you're standing there two feet away from him trying not to make any more sound with your hand over your mouth <laughs> so that you're not breathing in the spores 
and like this yeah. is this is um <laughs> like they trick you basically into being the character in a horror movie <laughs> and i found that like utterly terrifying but i'm not good with horror games i don't play horror games and uh and it never overwhelmed me it never got to the point where i wanted to stop playing where i was just too tense as to be exhausting but instead it was as i say just kind of like delighted that i was being pushed into these situations <laughs> and like part part of the reason i never get excited by it is that dialogue i talked about so um and this is the real strength i think of having alex talk is that you know they used alex in half-life 2 as a way of kind of re- reflecting the emotions of the player or or trying to enhance the emotions of the player because Gordon couldn't react to the scary thing that you were seeing or the traumatic thing that you were going through, but Alex could, and so it amplifies that emotion. Um, in in Half-Life Alex, it's still just Alex doing that. And so if you walk into like the first area of the game, which is a proper dark tunnel, just after you've got the, the flashlight for the first time, Alex talks to Russell over the radio in order to try and calm herself down like she explicitly met, like starts talking to him and asks him to talk to her to try and like keep herself calm and stop her from getting afraid and that dialogue that they then have is funny so that it actually works to keep me the player calm at the same time hmm. um, there's think... lots of lovely st- stuff like that I'm wondering um, it's kind of an awkward thing for folks who are who are very sensitive to horror stuff because I'm, I'm kind of like you where I don't really play horror games and I'm sort of, it's not my thing. But I have discovered that my sensitivity to it is actually much less than some people. Like I remember watching Stranger Things with a bunch of friends and some people just couldn't go on with it. It was too terrifying just from the first episode. And I realized, oh, like, people have very different sensitivities to this. And the tricky thing with this, it seems to me, is that a lot of people are going to be buying VR for this. And so if you haven't, uh, if you're taking that kind of gamble, um, mm. it's a a bit of a high risk if you if it has horror stuff in it and you don't know what whether it's going to be too much for you yeah and there is like like i was never so like the thing that everyone was talking about pre-release was the fear of head crabs jumping at their head mm. um and i never in the game found them frightening at any point like they've made lots of little adjustments to those existing half-life creatures um so that they work in VR and don't overwhelm. And, and the thing they've done with head crabs is that they're kind of clumsy now in a way that they never were. <laughs> like, they still jump at your head, but every time they jump at you and miss, they kind of land on their backs like a, like a spider for a, little, for a few seconds, and then it takes them a little bit to right themselves, and then they have to kind of, like, totter away from you, which takes another <laughs> few seconds, and then turn around and, and take, another, <laughs> take another go at leaping at you. And so it's kind of like it's kind of s- slow enough that it never felt like you know i think people were worried that it was going to be like alien <laughs> so you know this thing yeah. jumping at them uh and it never really was like that for me and so like i would say it it feels to me like it's a half-life game in vr like the true spirit of a half-life game in vr with all that entails and if you think about half-life 1 and half-life 2 they both had horror elements in it and then it's amplified by the fact that it's it's now a vr game so hopefully it's a thing that's somewhat expected at the very least for people buying it Mm. um like to talk a little bit more about 
like I always had a problem with some of the physics puzzles in Half-Life 2 and episode 1 and 2 where uh, they were kind of I kind of thought they were garbage sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, like they build Gor- the game builds Gordon Freeman up in the fiction as this um, almost like a figure of myth and legend for what happened in the first game. Um, you know, every citizen you meet in City Seventeen already knows your name and have heard tales of your exploits and want to remind you to reload <laughs> but then after you have these big battles you then become like an elevator repair man for a little bit or you spend some time carrying cinder blocks around in a sewer <laughs> to balance them on a piece of wood so you can reach <laughs> a slightly taller platform that always felt really jarring he's a physicist this is what he's good at <laughs> <laughs> it was like didn't find that particularly fun or uh, or fitting with the fantasy of ooh <clears throat> but Half-Life Alex, you like in some respects it has a similar issue in that Alex is just a kind of electrician. You do spend <laughs> a lot of time just turning the power onto things and working cabling in these really old rundown Eastern European apartment buildings. Uh and then you rummage through cupboards for a little bit to try and find something in the drawer that you can use some ammo or whatever else. Um but those environmental puzzles are much more satisfying to complete than anything in the prior games, I think. Like, that's one place where the VR stuff really helps it. Like, whether it's the electrician stuff or other environmental puzzles that I'm not mentioning, it's much better at that stuff. Where I think it suffers um, is in the combine fights. I really enjoyed most of the combat in the game. Um, I like fighting the headcrabs. I like fighting the zombies. Uh, I like fighting the some like new enemy types, some new headcrab types in there. I really loved fighting the ant lions, which make a return because um, they have really nice glowing weak spots <laughs> where you have to you can shoot their legs off individually and they burst off, uh, and then you can shoot their big glowing body to make them pop like a wet balloon um, and doing that stuff in VR is always really satisfying if you've got just got like a specific target to aim for that always feels really great uh, but then the combine soldiers which they are first of all the only enemy other enemy in the game that have guns just like you do uh, they all have a lot of armor so they take a lot of bullets from your guns to kill them even headshots don't take them down in a single hit with the most powerful weapon you've got. And then, uh, like, I never felt like I got into a rhythm with it in terms of, okay, I'm in VR, I'm playing at room scale. There's lots of items to hide around. This sort of turns it into a cover shooter in a way that Half-Life 2 never was. Like, my immediate instinct is to teleport over by that fountain and then duck down in my room so that the Combine can't shoot at me. But then, because it's not a third-person shooter in the way that most cover shooters are, you just, and now I can't see anything other than a fountain wall directly in front of my face. Like, there's no third-person camera to give you extra situational awareness. And so you have to lift your head up in order to see what else is going on. In which case, even on the normal difficulty mode I was playing on, I would just instantly start getting shot in the head and taking substantial damage. I never felt like there was a good rhythm between my mo- mobility 
as a player, what I seem to be naturally incentivized to do as a as a human being being shot at, and my ability to actually fight back against these combined soldiers. Uh, and then if I try to play it more freeform, okay, let's not go into cover, let's just teleport around, let's shoot at them, try and do it more like a traditional Half-Life 2 game, I nev still never found it satisfying to shoot at the combine soldiers. Like, some of them have... They don't have weak spots, but maybe they have, like, a, a, some propellant on their back, like a gas tank on their back, that if you shoot that a few times, that will explode, that sort of stuff. Um... But that's much harder to hit a particular weak spot on a particular enemy when there's three of those enemies and they can all shoot at you from any point within that environment. Um, and then I just ended up finding that stuff quite overwhelming by the end of the game because like there's already extra layers of considerations that I've already touched on when you're playing a VR game because you're not just thinking about your your physical form inside the game you're thinking about your physical form within your actual space well, if you're playing at a room scale like you're thinking all right i'm ducked down behind this fountain there's a big heavy combine soldier over there there's two lighter combine soldiers over that side of the room also in my real space i'm really close to the door right now <laughs> if i lift up my arm i'm gonna bang my hand off the wall yeah. uh um, um the cable's kind of wrapped around my leg so i'm trying to think okay how do i have to twist my body right now in order to be able to move without banging into my real wall plus unwrap the cable plus hide from these two soldiers plus move into this situation also there's ant lines in this little combat arena so they're coming at me at the same time uh now this combine soldier throwing a grenade at me okay i gotta kind of grab the grenade and throw that back oh uh, my gun is out of ammo and it's gotten almost you've got to manually reload these guns. So, like, if it's a shotgun, you've got to take individual shells out of your backpack by putting your left hand behind your shoulder, grabbing them. You've got to cock the gun. You've got to put the, the shells into the barrel. You've got to then um, flip the barrel back and then pump it. Um, like, these different steps of it. Oh, wait, I just dropped that bullet on the floor. <laughs> like, it felt there were a bunch of instances where I died, and I felt overwhelmed. And, like, I really like that manual reload mechanic for the guns. When it was, like, oh, I'm panicked because I'm scared about this this monster coming at me, and because I was panicked because of that, I dropped the bullet, and therefore I died. That felt really cool, and that felt fair. When it was because I was overwhelmed, because I was trying to deal with the f actual physical reality elements of VR that felt like bullshit uh, and like i felt like the combine soldiers pushed me over that limit now I, I i know other people who have played the game who had a much better time with the combine soldiers than i did but they all played seated or standing rather yeah. than at room scale and so they weren't having to think about the cable and that sort of stuff and it might be that if you've got a bigger space than i do like a much larger room then you wouldn't have that problem at room scale either. But then I don't know who in the UK really has a bigger room than I do. Like, I've got a pretty big room for playing VR in now. Yeah, I was saying last week, I've played in some very big rooms for VR, and it doesn't really solve the problem. You still have the same thing of, like, you're going to be walking around, so at some point you are going to be at the edge of your space. Um, and then you've, you really have to be thinking about it. And I was just always having to remind myself, like, oh, how close am I to the wall? And just distracting. The thing, the thing about it is that it just... I've kind of like I've picked at the combine fights because they they did frustrate me, but otherwise it's just really fucking good. <laughs> <laughs> like uh, I think it's 
it's either the best or the second best VR game. Um, and I think it's... I think it's on a par with previous Half-Life games. Like, I, I, Half-Life was sort of the the big thing I was into as a teenager, like the big big fiction I was a fan of and spent a lot of time making levels for and that sort of stuff. So I'm always super excited to get back into that world. Uh, and uh, Valve don't seem to have forgotten how to make a good first-person game or how to make a good Half-Life game in the 13 years since they, they last did it. Um, what is If this is the second best VR game, what is the best? Uh, well, it's it's either the if if this is the second best, then the best is Beat Saber, <laughs> <laughs> um, which is a rhythm music game in which you wield two lightsabers and swipe blocks um, at different directions uh, in time to music, uh, which is obviously a very different kind of game. But it's the VR <laughs> game I've played the most. It works perfectly in VR. Uh, it's super satisfying in a way that I never found Rock Band or Guitar Hero satisfying. Um, it's yeah, Beat Saber is fucking great and like perfectly yeah. made for VR, uh, and much more focused than Half Life Alex is. The the other thing like about Half Life Alex is that I'm not going to spoil the ending. <laughs> Good. Obviously, Good. <laughs> I'm not going to spoil any part of the story except that the the ending is almost trolling <laughs> like uh, it's it's clear to me that probably not many people have played Half-Life Alex because otherwise the ending of the game would have caused riots on the internet I think <laughs> I've only heard good things from people who played it everyone who's who I know who's commented on the story has just said wow an ending or like if they really stuck the landing or something like that I'm in a very weird place with it because I, <laughs> so I've played this at various stages of development. I haven't played the finished thing and I probably won't for a while because I don't have a VR setup here. Um, and the last time I played it, uh, I guess it wasn't, it was pretty complete, but it, it wasn't a huge play session. So I didn't play that much of it. Um, and so I played a lot of it in total, but it, some of it was very early. Um, and obviously I can't, you know, A, I can't talk about the, um, the previous versions and also B, why would I, <laughs> like, who cares? Um, uh, so I'm looking forward to actually playing it. Uh, but the f funny thing with spoilers is I am scared of having it spoiled, but I also seem to recall um, being told the entire plot <laughs> from start to finish, <laughs> just like over lunch, you know, Valve, like, <laughs> just uh, Robin laying out um, the plan for it. And I remember thinking, I remember some, some of the thoughts I had about it, but I don't remember the actual plot. <laughs> and so I'm I'm feeding on that ignorance. I want to like, keep that that uh, total forgetfulness <laughs> and hopefully I can be surprised by it when it happens. Like, there are some, again, no spoilers or anything like that, but there are some tremendous set pieces in the game and like there's there's stuff, stuff that it does that I've kind of forgotten that how good Half-Life games were doing in terms of, and just the, I don't know what the word is, like it's environmental design, but then it's also like product design, like the design of its robots and its machinery. Uh, and they really go all out with the combine stuff um, where like you, you, the game's only got three weapons really, but you can upgrade them now as the game goes along and you upgrade them at these combine terminals. And the, the way these things animate uh, with all these little arms coming out and grabbing the weapon and producing new parts for it is just astonishing and um, hmm. 
arms, you say? So James Benson did get to make little hands. <laughs> Someone definitely had a lot of fun with the machinery in it. And like, there's um, uh, you're using. I can't remember what they used to be called, but like the health stations on walls that you go yeah. up to to power up your your HEV suit or whatever else, and there was like combine versions of those in Half Life Two. And those combine versions exist now in Half Life Alex, but the power cell they take is like a little glass jar which has a, a living creature inside it, um, which you you find in the environment. You have to plug in to the the combine healing station, and then the little bug just gets crushed <laughs> into a paste which um, you then have to place your, your your hand down and little needles come out and poke your hand presumably putting the bug juice into your veins in order to restore <laughs> your health and there's all these things in there that are just just fabulous uh, and obviously it takes place in City 17 and so the centrepiece of it is the Citadel still is there they retcon Half-Life Fiction a little bit in order to make this work because the idea originally in Half-Life 2 was the Citadel was just like stabbed into the city fully formed um, like a dagger uh, whereas it's now just semi-built in Half-Life Alex. Um, they kind of retconned it so it's now in the process of being constructed but it's like the first thing you see in the game and the, one of the things VR is best at is scale and so just looking up at the citadel is a thrill i think mm. i was i was completely unrelated to the thing you said but <laughs> <laughs> i did find anything like um any technology in or on your hand was just super fascinating vr because you can put it right up to your face and like examine it in meticulous detail and of course it's all beautifully crafted <laughs> the gloves they they have your your health and your ammo readouts on the gloves because there's no there's no heads up display or anything like that and it's little hearts for your health and it just kept making me think of trespasser where you have to <laughs> right. your, your own cleavage in order to see the little tattoo of a heart uh, this is better <laughs> a little led readout <laughs> on your hand is much better than that <laughs> yeah i wonder if i've considered that <laughs> uh, close there's, second there's, it's just there's so much about the artistry of it and the execution of it. I just want to rave about because like the 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 writing in it is just so much better than any other game's writing or any <laughs> any action game's writing. Like I, I I shouldn't compare it to stuff like um, Eighty Days and and Heaven's Vault and that sort of stuff, which are fantastically well written. But there's no action game or first person game or third person action game which has writing as good as Valve's games it's just consistently funny and affecting and does a great job at quickly introducing characters and making you care about them um and it was like you know i feel like i i kind of given up on the idea of there being new half-life ever and i was kind of okay with that i feel like <laughs> uh, i feel like i'm a grown-up and there's lots of games and i don't need everything to exist in perpetuity forever uh, but it was a really exciting when they announced that there was going to be a new Half-Life game and I enjoyed the anticipation and I really loved playing it and now I don't have any more Half-Life to play anymore <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, oh, now I feel now, now I feel worse than I did before <laughs> <laughs> I Don't play this terrible game <laughs> <laughs> just, just spend the rest of your life 
knowing that you could play it is maybe the better <laughs> way to go. I've, oh, well, I've saved that's... a season of uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine for that reason. <laughs> There's always some more Brooklyn Nine-Nine for me to watch someday. At least, at least until they make another Half-Life game, and then you can play yeah. this one. <laughs> yeah, if you're always one behind, you're fine. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's going to be a reality for many people, obviously, because uh, they don't have VR, so it can stay there just having promise. Yeah. I remember we talked about, um, you were saying something like, uh, you couldn't remember the last time you'd been this excited for a game. And I said, I, I don't think I'll ever be this that excited about a game ever again. <laughs> Which was, sounded more depressing than it, than it feels. But um, it, like there was a time, you know, Half-Life 2 is the, the big one that I remember of, of like just electric anticipation. Me and Craig came into the office early because it was going to unlock just before work. And we were, um, I guess, surprising now in retrospect that we, we didn't take the day off. But um, uh, we played for like an hour or two before work. We made like hats, Half-Life two-day hats, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I don't really. Th- that happens much. Uh, well, it doesn't happen at all anymore. <laughs> um, and in general, like excitement about future games is much more muted for me. And I think it's. I think part of it is that back then, the best games were going to come from these big studios that have been around a lot and you played the last one and it was going to be it was going to blow you away because the technology was something you'd never seen before and so there's going to be a wow factor just inherent to it and there were enough um or well, not many but some studios who had been around enough that you could trust them completely that you just thought like um the next thing is going to be amazing and so now that these days most of my favorite games are indie games um and indie studios uh we're starting to now have some established ones who have you know um three games and they're all great for example um and but that's rare-ish and even then i don't like i'm certain uh, as certain as i can be that subsets next game will be amazing and i'll love it because i've loved both their previous games and they've only released those two games they have a hundred percent track record for (laughs) incredible stuff but i don't know what it'll be at all and so that doesn't leave me mega excited and even when they announce it um what it you know this is assuming there will be one it hasn't, uh, i don't know of its existence um i still feel like i'll be sitting there i'll be really really curious to play it like oh i'm so interested to see what this is and why it's good i won't know why it's good because we don't really have that whereas half-life 2 i knew why this would be good <laughs> like I, I could picture playing it so clearly i knew it was going to be amazing and it was even more amazing than that um and there's no studios around really that that do that for me now except the only exception for me at least is i think uh the next elder scrolls i'll probably be you know absolutely uh super excited about that because i know what it'll be and um i know it will be like the others but but more so and that's so far they've always pulled that off um so that's as confident as i get but it's maybe you know who knows now bethesda's track record has got a lot more rocky in recent years <laughs> um it hasn't they haven't done anything that bothered me personally i haven't played any of the games that people are mad about so i don't really have a um my own opinion of them is still pretty high but uh yeah that's the closest i get how about yeah. you guys <laughs> i mean i'm sort of in the a similar-ish position in that Half-Life Alex was the most excited I'd been about a game in a long time, but I still wasn't as excited about it as I was about Half-Life 2 Episode 2 um, mm. back in the day. And actually, like, I wasn't, I didn't work at PC Gamer when Half-Life 2 came out, but I, I, we did the same thing for Half-Life 2 Episode 1, where we, the three of us 
came into the office early yeah. <laughs> and played that for a couple of hours before work. Um, and yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's just in part because I'm older now, uh, but it's certainly in part because I'm busier now <laughs> and I already feel like I have just so many games to play that I want to play, but I never have time to play. And so even though I love Elder Scrolls games and I was super excited about Skyrim, I feel like if they announced a new one, I'd be like, oh, cool, I'll, I'll play that for five or six hours and, <laughs> and feel sort of slightly bad and disappointed in myself that I can't find the time to do, do it for more than that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. How I about think you, Josh? Well, I, I just think there's there's a natural sort of plateauing of newness within the medium that has mm. happened across uh, the course of our careers. It's a quite a short space of time, but when you know Half Life Two came out, Half Life Two was inventing new ways for games to exist and for you to interact <laughs> with them, and obviously they have done that with uh, Half Life Alex, but only by dint of choosing uh, quite a low bar to vault over in a uh, new uh, sort of adjacent medium of VR. You know, I don't think you can. I don't know that uh, the industry will have another surge of sort of creativity that is, is quite like the um, the escalation that existed in the sort of 90s to 2010s. I think it's going to... I mean, that doesn't mean that great games aren't coming out. They absolutely are, but it's just... It's not the same as these things being invented before your eyes, you know? And I, I think I might well have been very, very excited for Half-Life Alex, but it happens to be that they've picked uh, uh, a technology that I, I can't, I can't have. So, <laughs> so I, I, I don't know how I would have reacted to it if I had access to VR, or I didn't find VR to be a bit, bit of a objectionable faff. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's it's possible I would feel very differently if I couldn't just send an email to Valve and say, could I have a Valve Index, please, because <laughs> uh, yeah, I got I get these things to review as part of my job, and if it was just a, well, I mean, it's, it would be like a six hundred pound expense, and probably more than that, because I'd have to upgrade my PC. Um, that's uh, yeah, I would. I'm. I don't know how I would feel in that situation. Yeah, it's a bit of an, an anomaly. This one. Yeah. Are there indie devs that? Um... Where you're, you know, you're sort of certain you're going to like their next thing. Well, I mean, I haven't been on the podcast in a long time, but I've got to find an excuse to mention Spelunky. Oh yeah, <laughs> and Derek Hugh uh, is working on Spelunky too with a a different developer. Like he's not solely developing it himself. It's kind of like a hmm. another studio that's working on it with his guidance. Um, and like, I feel like. I'm gonna enjoy that a lot. Like, like my impression of it is that Spelunky One to me is this perfect, elegant thing, uh, and I sus strongly suspect you can't do a sequel which is that feels as perfect and as elegant, um, because you're gonna have to add a bunch of new stuff to that initial formula. Um, but I'm still okay with that. Like if it's just a bunch of 
new enemy types and new worlds and kind of slightly messy ideas applied to that thing then i'm gonna have great fun exploring that i think yeah. and i don't think it's going to stray far enough from the core formula for me to dislike it in, in any serious way so i'm like i'm always going to be always going to be excited about anything Derek you does basically yeah talking of uh plucky little indie devs releasing their next title i think you've been playing valorant by uh, the little known riot <laughs> game studio is that right Graham? <laughs> yeah um the, the segue is that it's it's basically another valve game it's counter-strike <laughs> yeah oh yeah that would have been a much better segue <laughs> jesus <laughs> um it's and it's counter-strike with some overwatch abilities in it basically uh and the point where i realized that was the point where i got interested in it because i sort of assumed when they first announced it because riot announced it in a strange way where they i suppose as part of their firefighting pr <laughs> of the last year or so announced like three games all at once um by showing 30 second in development clips of them with code names so this one was called project a uh, and they just said it was a hero shooter that was about all they said about it and so the assumption was oh this is them trying to do overwatch uh, and it does have named characters and with specific abilities that you pick at the start of rounds but in almost every other way it's counter-strike so it's it's each match is five players versus five players. There's an attacking team and a defending team. The attacking team is trying to plant a bomb, while the defending team is trying to stop them or defuse that bomb if it gets planted. Um, the matches are best out of 25 rounds. At the start of each round, you buy the guns that you're going to use for that round, and you earn money based on your performance in the previous round. Uh, and the guns are, they have fictional names, but they are direct analogs of real-world weapons, or at the very least, Counter-Strike's existing abstraction of those real-world weapons. So there is a Desert Eagle equivalent, there is an AK-47 equivalent, there's an AWP and an MP5. Um, every bit of it is Counter-Strike, except that you're in these named heroes. So I've been playing predominantly as a character named Phoenix, and as the name suggests, he's got fire abilities. He can cast like an area of, of area of effect, area of area of effect. Yeah, area of yeah. effect. Circle on the ground of flames that if people pass through, they take damage. Um, and his ultimate ability uh, lets you, you you trigger his ultimate ability, and then when a timer runs out or you die, you spawn back at where you first started. And so, hence the name Phoenix. Uh, but it's it's primarily about the guns and how quickly you can click on the heads of your <laughs> opponents. It's got a really low time to kill, in the and a, like the opposite of the combine soldiers. If you get a headshot with most of the weapons on an enemy, it's going to kill them in a single shot. And so you're going to focus really on guns and aiming, and. Uh, locational awareness and map positioning and what places are good to take cover and what are good uh, sniper spots and that sort of stuff and then what the abilities do is effectively very similar to what counter-strikes um i can't remember what they're called but they're the items like the smoke grenade the flashbang that sort of stuff they let you 
break um, stalemates and break through choke points and that sort of stuff. So, for example, Phoenix's ultimate ability, its most obvious use is if you're at a choke point and you know that there are two or three enemies on the other side of that choke point with their gun sights focused on the door, you can trigger his ultimate ability, run through, get a read of the room and find out everyone's positions, maybe shoot and kill one or two of them because you can take, you know, you're throwing caution to the wind. And then when you get struck down, you just spawn back where you just were at the other safe side of the choke point. Um, now maybe having thinned the herd so you can push forward. Uh, and so as people are learning the game and getting better at it, they're using the abilities more and working out how to use them. Uh, and it's, the Counter-Strike was the, probably the first multiplayer shooter I was really into. Like, I'd played a bunch of Quake and Quake 2 and Quake 3 and Unreal Tournament <laughs> and that sort of stuff, predating Counter-Strike. But Counter-Strike was the game where I got into clan. I got into playing in tournaments. Uh, I got into a lot of trouble with my mum and dad because I ran <laughs> up a, an enormous, an enormous phone bill because <laughs> I was still playing on dial-up. Uh, I'm paying by the minute and it took me like six months to pay off oh my God. <laughs> a phone bill uh, from playing so much Counter-Strike and a lot of the muscle memory I have from that game of how to use the AK-47 for example just transfers directly over to this and now obviously I could go play Counter-Strike Global Offensive which is the kind of modern iteration of Counter-Strike although it came out seven years ago now or something like that it's more popular today than it ever has been it recently started reaching over a million concurrent users and it's the most <laughs> popular game on steam now probably a little bit boosted by the quarantine as everything has been but it was already on that kind of path it's just been growing and growing and growing in popularity but if i go play counter-strike global offensive now i just get destroyed instantly and it's got it's got matchmaking and so theoretically it should be dropping me into players of a similar scale level as me but i don't despite having a million people uh every one of those a million people playing it is better at Counter-Strike now than I am <laughs> even though I because I just haven't played it in like 8-9 years with any seriousness whereas in Valorant it's, it's in closed beta at the moment the only way you can get access to it is by watching Twitch streams of the game uh, during which there's a random chance that you will get awarded a key and I think it's a pretty good chance Like I don't, I don't think they're being that stingy or that, that gating with it and so the people who are playing it are all inexperienced or as inexperienced as I am with probably a handful of Counter-Strike pros checking it out and streaming it and that sort of stuff. But I, I seem to be able to more or less hold my own. And so right now I'm having a lot of fun with it. It feels like playing Counter-Strike did enough that I'm having a great time and I'm not embarrassing myself or being made miserable and I have no expectations of my own ability because it's a brand new game and I've never never been good at it really um, yeah so I'm having I'm kind of I don't know what the kind of long term prospects for the game is uh, I assume Riot are going to support it and going to add new heroes and going to lots and lots of cosmetics it's already got a button in there that lets you gaze admiringly at the paintwork <laughs> of your gun and stuff oh, like that and, and you you know it's got unlocks up the wazoo um but i strongly suspect 
in two months' time, everyone who plays it will be much better at it than I am, and I will stop having any fun, <laughs> and, and yeah. so I will stop playing it. Uh, but it is good, and I do think it will stick around. And I do think it's like people were quite dismissive of it when it was announced for being derivative of Overwatch and then de- derivative of Counter Strike. But I think it's good enough and polished enough that it makes an argument for why a, a, a crossover between those two things is, is good, actually. It seems, um, it doesn't seem like the marketplace is too crowded for these things because, like, things keep coming out of, uh, you know, being very suddenly announced and released and, uh, taking over the world seemingly becoming massively popular and then a new thing also comes out and is massively popular and the old thing doesn't seem to really die like PUBG is still being played um you know csgo is still being played uh apex legends you know it feels like not long ago that was just like nothing else was was being talked about that was just completely had won the world and yeah. all these things just seem to continue to exist and then new things can also come out and catch on which is wild it was interesting riot talked about you know, what was their reasoning behind making the game? And it basically sounded like they were throwing shade at Valve because they said that they'd they'd seen uh, kind of like a space in the market because of other games in the genre not being properly supported. <laughs> um, and it's like, CSGO does just get larger and larger and larger. And I think Valve do support that game somewhat uh, but not with anything like the kind of substantial content drops they used to do for TF2 back in the day. Like it's it's relatively quiet. It tends to be little you know, cosmetic items and little tournament stuff that they do for it. Um, it's hard to know how they could expand it though, because there is such a uh, a desire for sort of Counter Strike purity in that game more than any other multiplayer shooter. Like it feels like it's very static. It wouldn't do with the you know evolving meta, and uh, I don't think anybody's going to release new maps uh, which are going to be preferable to Dust, right? No, and I think that's that's probably the exact problem they've always had for it because they have added new maps, and those maps have every single time been unpopular. Um, <laughs> you know, not a single one of them has taken off anywhere near. Uh, as well as Dust or Dust 2 or CS Italy or any of these maps that were made like 20 years ago now, literally 20 years ago. It's <laughs> um, wild. Yeah, so the CSGO continues to grow without without any support. Definitely makes me think that Valorant will find a space because Riot are clearly going to support the heck out of it. That's actually really interesting because it almost feels like some of the recent big hits have... I don't know, maybe not recent, uh, but like, I'm just thinking about all these games where the map doesn't, not the map doesn't matter, but the map doesn't need to change. Like Dota, right? It's just one map. Yeah. And uh, PUBG was just one map for, for ages. And I wonder if like Counter-Strike was secretly that already. Like it only really needed you know, one or, or a handful of maps and you just didn't need any more because it was just like, that's what you play on and the game is what happens on it. Yeah, definitely. And I think like, PUBG, when it introduced multiple maps, introduced a bunch of problems in that it then split its community and split its matchmaking uh, across those different maps. 
and then people started getting cross at the matchmaking not giving them a choice of which map they were going to land on and quitting mm. games really early when it put them on a map that they didn't pick and then they added level select so people could choose what map but then people were just disproportionately picking the one map they liked and ignoring the others <laughs> and so they removed it again they had all these sorts of problems with it and then you compare that to Fortnite which was just one map and then they destroyed that map they sucked it into a black <laughs> hole <laughs> and completely replaced it with a new single map with a completely different layout um, and people just accepted it people were just okay <laughs> with that they were just like oh yeah cool that was that was fun yeah. you know and they've just continued to rewrite like you know drop a meteorite in the middle of that thing <laughs> like they just go through like world of warcraft cataclysm levels of <laughs> recreating that thing and people just roll with it and like where I feel is like if you moved a crate on D Dust Two, fucking furious about it. Yeah. Shall we do some questions from questions? Yeah. yeah. Excellent. Nebajoth says hello, good folk. Thank you for keeping the pod going during quarantine. Even though I know it must necessarily lose something of the audible physical comedy and bamboozlery. And seemingly <laughs> drinking that drives much of your acoustic stage play <laughs> during normal wow. times. Uh, nice. Um, anyway, uh, he also says, I wonder if... And he's pleased to have you back, Tom, and says, I wonder if Graham is languishing in isolation would consider appearance. <laughs> would, would you consider appearing on our podcast, Graham? Mm, I'll have to... Th- think about it consider it yes exactly what i said last week to that same question about me (laughs) so his question is in this time of socialization people are looking to video calls and games to replace the sensation of being near someone else at least temporarily they have already been used for this of course but the need is now much greater can you discuss some games that foster solidarity among humans I suppose that means that the examples that spring to mind will mostly be co-op, but perhaps there is room for a competitive activity that still engenders mutual exp- respect. Do you think that this? Do you think that this is a thing? I am looking for societal salves, things that evoke comfort in being part of the mass. These are the things that I find myself missing most right now, and they are the thing I find I should be seeking more of. He also thanks Alex for recommending Deep Rock Galactic. Yeah, so there you go. Societal salves. I don't know uh, if I would... Sorry, go on. Uh, I was going to say Animal Crossing, which is an obvious one, but um, uh, I don't know if solidarity is quite the word I'd use, but it has... Uh, for me, it's done a good job of pushing me to hang out with other people because I'm not good at um, sort of like reaching out and uh, asking someone, hey, play with me. Um and so if left to my own devices, I will never do it. And Animal Crossing has worked because uh, you've got to sell your turnips. <laughs> I've invested like 250k in turnips at this point, And if I don't get a good price this week, I'm ruined. <laughs> so, uh, And then every week so far, a friend has tweeted like, oh my God, they're buying turnips for 400 on my island. Uh, who wants to come visit? And so I'll go there to sell my turnips. And then of course, we'll end up chatting and I'll play a little ocarina and give them some gifts and uh have like a really cozy nice time go see their house um see the amazing things they've done with their island and Mm. uh have a nice little like uh, session of admiration and uh fun times in a way that i would never um sort of think to arrange myself the societal salve of turnip based capitalism (laughs) who would have predicted 
if look if if sigma theory had its way we wouldn't have this brilliant capitalism bring us all together <laughs> it would all be about the approval of the korean government <laughs> you should have just uh, given the government turnips and they would have been well up for your, <laughs> your shenanigans yes kill anybody who you want it's fine <laughs> the closest i've ever had to a society forming in a video game I'm sure I would have spoken about this in the podcast back in the day, maybe on the PC Gamer podcast actually, was Worm Online, which is a survival MMO in which everything is difficult uh, and everything is a right-click context menu. And so in order to like, <laughs> in order to chop down... I think it predates Minecraft. Um, in fact, I think maybe Notch mm. worked on it as a programmer for a short while. Yeah, he did. Um, I seem to remember that. But it's a game in which you don't punch the trees, you right-click on the trees and click chop. (laughs) And then you do that 20 times. You right-click and click chop 20 times until the tree falls down. And then you do that again to turn the tree into logs. And then you do that again to turn the logs into planks. And then you have to go mine some iron (laughs) and do the same thing with a pickaxe on a wall uh, through right-click context-sensitive menus until you get enough iron that you can smelt it down and turn it into nails, and then you can combine the nails with the planks in order to make a single three-foot by six-foot bit of wooden wall. Uh, and if you keep doing this, then after about 60 hours of playing the game, you might have a very tiny house. Um, because everything takes so long and is so incredibly tedious to do, the only way to really make any substantial progress is to work with other human beings. And so I used to play it with the PC Gamer community, which founded its own little village on top of a hill. And if, if you said you wanted to start building a house, eight other players would turn up and you would basically raise a barn together uh, and they had a soup kitchen where the p- people would donate food to the soup kitchen so that players that were you know their cooking skills still sucked or they hadn't had time to plant a farm or forage or whatever they could go to the soup kitchen to get food and we spent a lot of time working with google sketchup <laughs> to build like maps of the village and to like plan out future expansions and we had a, a forestry commission whose job it was to replant the trees that were chopped down so that we had a constant supply of wood and <laughs> basically everyone had a job to play in order to make this little community function uh you know which which would be great now except that warm online was incredibly dated in 2010 when i was playing <laughs> it and i I'm not sure i would would actually recommend anyone go play it then or now. Um, <laughs> maybe maybe try Sea of Thieves. <laughs> yeah, we've been um, playing uh, lots of role playing stuff over Roll Twenty, uh, which is a really good platform for distance role playing. Has lots of stuff in built into it. You so lot um, a lot of the systems already have like character sheets and things like that just built into the into the platform it's just a website you can visit and it, but everything's done through this web interface but um i can't think of anything which is more of a kind of communal effort than you know essentially creating a, a story together i think that's i think that hits all the, the tech ticks all the right boxes as a societal mm. salve tom young says Having the lovely Tom F on the last podcast to hit to, 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 to hit about the talk man is what I was going to say. 
But that's <laughs> that's not the way those words go. <laughs> Having the lovely Tom F from the last podcast to talk about Hitman reminded me of the discussion you all had about NPC reactions in Hitman aeons ago. How, for example, dressing as a butler will make all the NPCs ask if you're off to do some butlering or disguising as a cook will cause everyone to ask when you're cooking the next meal. So now for my question. If a bald murder man stole your outfit as a disguise, what would NPCs say to him as he approached? Keep up the pods. You're all very lovely and cool. Thanks, Tom. <laughs> I, I think I'd be one of those disguises that you can't put on because it's not a real thing. <laughs> like sometimes you just like, you take out like a normal civilian and his clothes just don't come up as an option because it's just like this is just a guy. No one's going to think anything about you. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, like I, because of the quarantine, I am <laughs> not changing my clothes as much as I would do. <laughs> so I feel like the other NPCs would just be. Re- remarking upon the old beans stain down the front of my t-shirt <laughs> <laughs> actually i have been spending some days in my pajamas and so they probably say ah going immediately to bed <laughs> <laughs> and i'd be like yeah yeah i am yeah that's why Ten <laughs> thirty <laughs> a.m <laughs> Warren Selick writes, Dear Crate and Crowbar, I've been watching Vagrant Queen, a delightfully low-budget and wonderfully campy sci-fi show that feels, for all the world, like a group of very good friends just decided to get together and have a blast filming themselves acting out sci-fi tropes. With human actors, this sort of joy is easy to get across, through banter and comedic body language and facial expressions, but I wonder now whether games can also do something like this. What are the small or imperfect games that nevertheless ooze a distinct sense that the people creating them had a lot of fun doing so? There are a lot of happy or cheerful games in terms of the intended player experience, but I'm not sure I've often got the sense of the joys and delights of the creators themselves as people. Brutal Legend and Guacamelee... Um, Guacamelee? Guacamelee? How would you say that? <laughs> yeah, Guacamelee. Guacamelee. Come to mind as possible examples, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Cheers, Warren. I thought of um, jazz punk. Uh, oh yeah, jazz is, punk. Yeah. Uh, nothing wrong with the game. It's not a flawed uh, thing, but just that the it's so packed with jokes that it's got to be. I don't know what the team was like actually. Whether it was um, whether they were sitting together, but if they were, it would, be, it would have been a great writers' room. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good example. Uh, I've, I mean, the one I thought of maybe because. I've just got a really bad long-term memory. It was a game I played last is week. Is it Worm Online? Is <laughs> <laughs> a virtual virtual reality, which is a virtual reality game uh, in which you put on virtual reality headsets in order to enter different realities in the game. <laughs> um, and it's a kind of it's like an it's a first-person adventure game. It's vaguely portal-ish in that uh, you've just, you, you're a new employee for this company entirely run by AI and so you, you spend most of your time talking to slick white robots um, but it does a lot of fun things with, you get given these clients who you have to satisfy in some way so you pop a, pop on a VR headset in order to, to go visit them and your first client is just an enormous slab of butter uh, and what he wants you to do is to cover him with toast uh, and you're in a, in a virtual reality creation of a kitchen with 30 toasters in it there's a little bit of light puzzling or not light puzzling but there's a light challenge to it in that you have to t- 
take the toast out of the toasters before it gets burned and stick it to him while he like hedonism but <laughs> groans with, with pleasure uh, <clears throat> and it does lots of fun reality bending things as it goes along it's quite a nice script and it's really really beautiful to look at as well um, it's like a two hour long experience that I, that came out a couple of years ago that I'd never heard of and it's a good example of like a VR game that if it had been a proper desktop game would probably have be quite well regarded but because it's a VR game no one has actually heard of it um, but yeah, it's really funny, very silly. I bet a uh, totally accurate battle simulator was fun to make as well. Mm. Mm. You see, they're making a a new game. Uh, I always see that guy tweeting incredible gifts from things he just made, like this morning. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, I've made a first-person shooter where you take out robots. Yeah, it looks like he's having fun making a new thing. I think he's doing. I think he keeps calling it total, totally accurate battle royale maybe or something like that but he keeps this week he's been posting lots of gifts of a first person game where you're performing parkour across this city jumping from rooftops and stuff doesn't that already exist didn't they make a battle royale uh during the development of tabs huh because i i remember um alex's son jack was uh, obsessed with it (laughs) and i think chris played it so maybe Mm. that's maybe he's gonna add some stuff to it or something yeah, maybe. Uh, Willem Nyland is that guy's name. Rykon writes to say, Hi, gentle people. I only just recently began properly listening to the podcast and enjoy it very much. Thank you for all you do. I have a question about morality in video games. And he goes on to describe uh, our Call of Duty discussion uh, in which we were disappointed with how the game frames serious actions and forces you into choices that aren't really choices at all and in the end you've accomplished the mission but in a way which feels morally strange and wrong and he compares that to uh, Red Dead Redemption 2 uh, where he engaged in um, weird antisocial immoral behavior that at times seemed to be punished by the simulation at other times wasn't recognized at all as being prohibited and even when things did go wrong, he didn't feel like his character had done uh, a morally bad thing. Um, which brings him, well, brings me, or him, depending on who the, the speaker is. Us. Us. Brings us to his question. There you go. <laughs> is there a distinction to be made for immoral behavior if the script is acted, as in Call of Duty, versus non-scripted, free-will-based stuff in RDR2? slash sandboxes is committing an immoral act worse if the game forces you to do it versus having it be the choice you proactively make curious to hear your thoughts all the best Rykon yeah I mean I don't I feel like it's worse if it's your own choice to go do the horrible thing well it reflects worse on you at least I don't know I, yeah. sort of, it really depends I mean it, it depends about where uh morality is being placed in in this scenario like our criticism of call of duty isn't that uh the player themselves ends up being immoral it's that the game presents immoral things you know it's it's not it's not on the player in that context at all um but that doesn't mean that there isn't an issue of immorality involved it's just <laughs> i would say that the game itself is expressing itself in a is expressing some sort of immorality whereas i in in red dead redemption um 
you know the the freedom to do immoral things is is sort of on the player really I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wasn't familiar with the Call of Duty conversation you guys had last time, mm. so I broadly agree with that about Call of Duty. Although I do, I was always this would come up a lot with with Grand Theft Auto when GTA was, um, it was causing all these controversies in the press and stuff like that, or people, people sharing stories in the tabloids about the things you could do in this game, and the defense that games journalists would run to would often be, oh, but you don't have to do those things. Those right, things are yeah. voluntary. And I always felt a little bit uneasy about our eagerness to give the game a pass for things that it goes out of its way to simulate and has spent a great deal of time animating and providing players with the options to do. But because it's optional, we say, oh, yeah, but that's fine. You know, it's, it's on players that they're doing that thing rather than, no, the developers are are simulating that thing and creating that experience as an option. And that that does have moral weight, I think. Yeah, sorry, I, I didn't mean to completely dismiss that. Uh, I just meant as a differentiation between the way that Call of Duty operates and the way that Red Dead Redemption operates. The, the player isn't really involved in doing in making evil choices in in Call of Duty it's you know they are essentially railroaded into these things or alternatively they are given like a weak sort of way of escaping doing these bad things but essentially the same results fall out uh, from that stuff I mean there's just it's it's just there's a there's uh, it's not I mean it doesn't really come down to uh, morality on the player's part at any point because you aren't really doing any wrong yeah. <laughs> in the real world <laughs> yeah. you know these 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 people don't don't exist that you are uh you know s- simulating the deaths of etc um i have a very low tolerance for um being forced to do nasty things in a game but when left to my own devices, I will do terrible, terrible things. <laughs> so like in Red Dead, actually within the same game, I remember there was a mission where I had been told that you have to go around your debt collection, basically, and, and mm. you're, you have to go around getting money out of these people and one person doesn't pay up and you have to, I was told, you have to beat him to get the money out. Oh, God, and I did yeah. this mission and I was like, oh God, I don't think I want to do this, but um, I, I've got to to progress. Uh, and I got to that guy and I just refused to do it. I just would not do it. Um, and the game's telling you to do it, and I didn't do it. And then after, it took a really long time to the point that I think, I almost wonder if this isn't intended, but uh, I actually was able to progress and not, I think the guy either didn't give me the money and I just accepted it, or maybe he did give me something. Uh, and I was able to just progress the quest and I upheld my moral standards. And then later in that same game, I uh, lassoed a guy, a total stranger had done nothing wrong to me, tied him up, and then I picked him up and carried him to a some shallow water and oh, just God. placed him in the water to see if he would drown <laughs> and he did <laughs> it turns out he did because <laughs> i just wanted to know how the physics works i'm like you know this guy's tied it's non-lethal so far but would obviously if i dumped him in the lake i'm sure that counts as a death but is that just like a trigger volume that he hits when he sinks or are they modeling where his mouth is and then like deciding whether or not he would be able to breathe in this situation did you so did you discover placed him in the water yeah he died no, 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 no. <laughs> my, my knowledge came at a terrible cost <laughs> But was it because his his mouth specifically was? <laughs> oh, um, I don't know. I, you don't really get the option to how to place them, so it might just be like a hard coded rule of like, yeah. oh, this is water, you die immediately. Yeah, I think if they're hog tied and in a certain amount of water, that's uh, they begin to expire. 
but I can't. Yeah, I think there's. I mean, gamers are always capable of these sort of weird compartmentalizations. Um, and I, yeah. I think when you're being asked to engage uh, in a in a narrative, then I, I think you're far more alert to the moral repercussions of that. But but when when you're in free roaming mode, you are thinking about the game as a simulation and what kinds of levers you can pull. It becomes much more mechanical, and you know it's it's natural for you to pull different naughty levers. <laughs> <laughs> And this was in the spirit of scientific curiosity. I needed to learn, you know, I want to experiment and find out what the rules of the game are and how it works and tinker with it. Um, <laughs> and I don't, I never do stuff in games out of cruelty. Like I'm not, I don't get any pleasure out of like tormenting uh, somebody um, for, uh, you know, uh, just to like, uh, for the sake of their suffering. I just drown them to find out. What <laughs> just a good clean kill. Good clean drowning. <laughs> <laughs> but I think there is there's, there are philosophical arguments about like the moral status of actions that don't make anyone's lives worse. Um, like this is um, uh, there are debates about like uh, how you treat animals. Like under under certain views of philosophy, where only human lives matter and only human happiness matters, uh, why is it even wrong to torment an animal? And the sort of uh, arguments that were made about that were um uh that it reflects something about a person's character that suggests they will do this to people eventually as well um and i think that was a not a very good uh thought experiment because animals do matter <laughs> but in video games now we really are tormenting things that have really don't matter at all like don't feel pain in any meaningful sense can be instantly recreated or destroyed and uh, just aren't people or anything like people um and aren't living uh and yet it does if you w looked over somebody's shoulder and you watch them just like torturing somebody in a game for fun when it was not part of the game and um they weren't getting anything any reward from it you would kind of think hmm <laughs> not sure about this guy i mean this is obviously it's a more complicated issue as soon as you introduce other human beings but i I think I once played the Battlestar Galactica board game with Tom Senior, um, who is also an animal that doesn't. Um, <laughs> uh, but he, I think, I can't remember the exact details of it, but in that game, some people on board the, the ship Battlestar Galactica are Cylons, and you don't know who at the start of the game those people are. I was a Cylon. And I think I ended up, over the course of the game, becoming both the president and the leader of the military. <laughs> uh, and I put, and orchestrated a situation where Tom Sr. got put in the brig of the ship. Because <laughs> um, he suspected me. And I think he then spent the, in pretty much the entirety of the game just in prison. In which you can't really do anything. The game was like it took like an hour and a half to play this and i'm not sure tom actually did anything for the entire duration of that game uh and now that's that's like within the rules of the game that's how you're supposed to play it essentially if you're a cylon um and so i feel like if you just if you're just playing that you're playing the game as intended that's not immoral um, but it becomes more complicated when the action that you're doing within the rules of the game is not actually fun for the other person. <laughs> you're kind of like robbing them of fun. Uh, and that's yeah. like, that is, that's a valid criticism of the game not being particularly well designed in that aspect. Although I, I like that board game generally. Um, <clears throat> but I've, I've always been uneasy about the idea that mm, maybe just 
ruined that experience for Tom. Uh, <laughs> but maybe you ruin the experience more generally if you don't play according to those rules, if you just let Tom out to be nice to Tom the human. I don't know. Mm. Well, that's yeah, why that's... he refused to come on the podcast this evening, is actually... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh, Graham's going to be there. <laughs> <laughs> actually, we should have invited him on then had him muted the entire time. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we can hear you, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's definitely uh, a criticism of the game more than you. Um, but it is, I agree that there's, like, the game put you in a position where you had to make a choice between play the game as intended or or is the game so flawed that I need to override it and skip the... Um, play against the rules and sabotage my own chances just to uh, try and enhance someone else's experience, which is obviously a choice the game should never be I think uh, forcing you to make. Because I, I, I played quite a lot of um, that board game ages and ages ago, and I think we did end up with house rules which meant that the brig was more circumventable, just because it is it is completely it is rubbish. If you get in the brig, <laughs> it's just you just you can't really get out without, without everybody else basically... Um, coming to your to your rescue um and so if there are if there are a couple of cylons on the other side they can just block people indefinitely basically i mean i didn't i didn't mention it because my memory's a little bit fuzzy but i think you were a part of this game and you were also a cylon that sounds quite <laughs> likely yeah, <laughs> yeah. So i think maybe there's to tom senior together <laughs> yeah i like that twist was i there <laughs> i don't think so i think chris was could uh, be. I, th- I think it was at their old flat. The only time I played that game, I was a Cylon sympathizer, and I really didn't feel I had anything interesting to do. <laughs> it was quite a flat experience. I don't remember what the Cylon sympathizer rules are. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the exciting thing about it being a Cylon is eventually you can reveal yourself, and then you have a whole other game to play where you get to drop terrible terrible calamity on the heads of all the other players but you presumably can't do that if you're actually just a human sympathizer yeah i don't remember the specifics but i definitely remember everything this is the worst of all worlds i'd rather be anything <laughs> than this <laughs> yeah good game Except though in the brig i guess <laughs> well neptune's pride is the um the video game equivalent of this right which within the rules of the game forced people to do unspeakable betrayals upon each other yeah, that that's one where I um, uh, took the high ground and and did basically throw my chances of, of winning the game in order to um, knowingly walk into a trap to defend my girlfriend at the time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I've told this story in a bunch of different places and formats before, but that's the game in which I brutally stabbed in the back every single person I made an alliance with, and uh, including... Kieran Gillen, while he was at an event at a pub mourning the cancellation of his comic series at the time, because uh, he and I entered in, into an alliance um, to basically finish the game because it had been going on for six weeks at that point. 
Uh, and then I did the math, realised he was going to win, waited until he was out of the house, <laughs> and then sent all my ships to destroy him. And then when he came back, he was so annoyed at me, he started petulantly gifting me his planets, <laughs> as if to the say, well, if you want it that badly, here you go. At which point I felt so guilty, I started gifting them back to him as fast <laughs> as I possibly could. <laughs> so yeah, that was good. Alex Watts writes, Hello CNC. Uh, I just wanted to say thank you so much for finding a way to keep the pod going. Um, ba -ba -da -ba -ba, then he writes some other stuff, which is very nice. Um, <laughs> he says, I recently picked up Assassin's Creed Odyssey because I was supposed to be going on holiday to Kefalonia, the island the game starts on. And now, obviously, I am not. <laughs> I wanted to see how much holidaying I could recreate in-game. It's, it's a remarkably pretty game that recreates the look of a lovely Greek island well, but I've had to murder a few more people than I had expected on my beach break. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever played a game specifically to do some virtual tourism, and how successful was it? Did you have to fight the game systems to do it? So long, and thanks for all the pods, Alex. Uh, yeah, Odyssey has been checking that box for me uh, often, and... Uh, especially Origins as well, uh, which is the Egypt one. Mm. Um, and in both cases, the fact that you can fly around them as a bird is a huge uh, boost. That um, really lets you just like soak in the, the spectacle of the whole thing. And um, it's gorgeous and not worry about the game. I mean, VR is obviously great for this. Um, I wouldn't recommend using... Half-Life Alex as a form of tourism <laughs> of Eastern Europe um, but there are a, a, a lot of well a lot of software I guess maybe more than games because there's Google Google Earth um, which is possibly just one of the most astonishing things that exists um, because it is a 3D model of our entire planet including 3D models of individual buildings in cities all around that planet that you can open up in VR and then walk around. And they've done updates to it recently so that um, the quality, like it's it's doing um, magical generational stuff to take aerial satellite photos and turn those into 3D textured models automatically um, but it's really impressive and really detailed and then they, I think they use like crowdsourcing for a bunch of like special cases like the Eiffel Tower and that sort of stuff and so anywhere in the world you want to go and crouch in your room but pretend that you're a bird as you float above it in VR you can do that um, and then last week I used a new thing that I think it's like a year old but Google did this thing called I think it was like Welcome to Light Fields or something like that where they designed a special camera that's like kind of like a, an arc shape or a horseshoe shape with camera lenses all the way around the arc and then it rotates so you take 360 degree photos incredibly in really high resolution that then this software renders as a, a 3D space around you, but then um, it does real-time rendering of lighting and reflections within that space. So it's taken from a set of photos, but if you look at 
a metal cup within that space, the reflections in that metal cup are accurate based on the position of your head at any given moment. <laughs> no way. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so mm. it's just photorealistic 3D spaces, and they're completely static. Um, but Google have a whole bunch of these, including like the space shuttle and so and um, various works of architectural beauty and interest in California. Um, and that's really, really, I mean, it's, it's particularly during the quarantine, uh, I've enjoyed using these things in order to poke around spaces other than my own bedroom, which is otherwise all I have access to. I'm really looking forward to, when's uh, Watch Watchdogs out? Is that going to be out before our isolation ends? Is what I'm asking, basically. <laughs> oh, is this going to be how I get to experience London? Is uh, yeah. a dystopic <laughs> version. I, I, I'm I hope really... they did all the reference ahead of time. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, those kind of games, along with the Assassin's Creed games, but, uh, you know, I forget the which... Was it just called Watch Dogs San Francisco? I can't even remember what it was called. Just Watch Dogs 2. Watch, Watch Dogs 2, yeah. I mean, that oh, was, it might be uh, called Watch Dogs 2 Le Legion. No, Legion's the new one, isn't it? Is it? Fuck. I, yeah, I the new know. one's called Legion. The it's second one's just called Watch Dogs 2. Right. Yeah. I mean, even though they aren't, you know, fastidiously accurate recreations of those environments, it's still uh, there's still enough of the, the individual landmarks to get a sense of the place, and I think they're quite evocative of the, the, the atmosphere. Um I don't know. Maybe people in Catalonia feel very uh, aggrieved by Assassin's Creed Odyssey. I don't know. We'd have to ask them. Oh, also, yeah, Microsoft Flight Simulator as well. That's coming up soon, isn't it? Oh yeah, that'd be a good one. Yeah. I used to use play X that in VR. Sorry. Yeah, I used to use um, X Plane a bunch, which mm. is like the kind of rival flight simulator, and it um, has better three D modeling than the last flight simulator because the last flight simulator was so long ago now uh, and that was always really good but I would more often than not rather than do tourism to place it, other places I would just use these things to hover above my own house and look <laughs> out the window of my plane and go hey, that's my house down there that's where I live I did before moving to Vancouver I was sort of uh, using my Vive one last time and uh, in Google Earth I, I sort of zoomed over to Vancouver and you can uh, it didn't seem to want to do this, but there is a way to have it give you the, the kind of globe view where it's um, a 3D model, um, but let you zoom in and get really close to it. And normally when you zoom in, it kind of switches to a map type mode um, and starts using like satellite data and things. But I wanted like the, the 3Dness of it. And so I was able to get it, like bring the, the sort of mountainous um, terrain around Vancouver uh, up in front of me as if it's like a rocky wall that I could climb mm. and it was amazing to like grab bits of that scenery and drag around and just look at all the little rivers and um, forests and um, mm. rock formations do you remember GeoGuessr I think there might have been a couple of yeah. web games on this this thing where you were presented with basically just a Google Street View from somewhere in the world and you had to deduce where it was and you then got points depending on how you know how close you got um, but I, yeah, I went. Uh, I was just wondering if, because I used to be really good at that. But no particular. <laughs> don't know why. Um, but uh, I went back to the site recently. It's. Uh, it seems like somebody's tried to monetize it in a rather aggressive way. So it's. Uh, it's a bit of a sad end. Hmm. To the geo guessing game. 
those are all the questions that we uh, we have. If you'd like to um, send us a question, you can do so via the power of email to questions at creightoncrowbar.com or you can tweet us at creightoncrowbar, although I don't know that we necessarily read <laughs> Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can listen to all of these podcasts as videos on YouTube, uh, which is youtube.com slash creightoncrowbar. Uh, and you can, if you wish, support us on Patreon which is patreon.com slash create and crowbar. Many of the nice people who do that can be found on our Discord community, the link for which is on our website, creatingcrowbar.com, where you can also find the show notes for these episodes. Individually, I am and have been and hopefully will continue to be for at least a brief time, Marsh Davis. Uh, are we doing Twitter handles? I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> Pentadact on Twitter. Sorry, I, Tom Francis, and Pentadact on Twitter, P-E-N-T-A-D-A-C-T. Perfect. Uh, and I, Graham Smith, um, at Gonas on at Twitter, which is G O N N A S. Thanks for listening, everybody.